enough is enough here. The two African-American men dead at a place where they claim to be working for Black Lives Matter, but they're gone. They're dead now. You heard the police chief just say it. Enough is enough. Seattle's police chief condemning the violence in and around the city's chop zone as another shooting leaves a 16-year-old dead. The mayor said the concrete barriers would be removed by Sunday, but that hasn't happened yet. Joining us now to react is former Seattle City Council candidate Ari Hoffman. Good to see you this morning, sir. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Who needs to step up right now and take charge? Right now, the mayor called last week for the barriers to be removed and has yet to actually release any kind of plan in order to do so. The mayor says she is continuing to negotiate with the people who are inside representing the CHOP. However, there are so many groups in there, I'm not really sure who she's working with because when they showed up on Friday to dismantle the barriers, other protesters came out and said they weren't leaving, laid down in front of the construction equipment, and even pulled a gun on some of the construction workers. They ended up leaving after a day of standing around doing nothing. Yeah, Ari, you mentioned a whole lot of groups there, some of them working against each other. Take a look at this full screen that we're going to pop up right now. These are folks who are trying to advance the CHOP cause. One individual saying it makes us have to worry about extra stuff going on down there that doesn't necessarily pertain to why CHOP's here. Another individual, Harry Rick Hearns, then saying they need to clean out that whole park. Now, along those lines, two African-Americans shot dead in CHOP. How does that advance the cause of Black Lives Matter? As the police chief says, it doesn't at all. In fact, in fact, it's completely hypocritical when you say you're fighting for black lives, and yet the people who are being killed by these shooting are black individuals. And what we're dealing with right now is an ongoing problem where you have groups like Antifa in the CHOP. You have groups like the um, John Brown Gun Club inside the CHOP. And what happened was a bunch of them left after the first shooting, and then when they heard that the CHOP was getting dismantled, started coming back. Just yesterday, they attacked a Fox News correspondent. They attack anybody who isn't of their way of thinking. And right now, they're not even sure what actually triggered this shooting incident, because at first they were saying it was a drive-by shooting, and yet no weapons were recovered from the vehicle. The windows were rolled up in the vehicle when they were shot out, not usually the case in a drive-by shooting. So it raises more questions than answers. Let's take a look at the, the facts right now as we have them. The violence inside this chop zone, at least four shootings, four people injured. And as you heard Todd and the sheriff say, and the chief of police say, excuse me, that two people have died. What do you see happening for this area long term when you think about the people who live there, when you think about the people who have businesses there, who haven't been able to open their businesses for months because of COVID and now this? What is the vision there long term? Right now, we just got we just saw that uh, there are two lawsuits pending against the city that just got filed. One is a class action lawsuit by businesses and residents and apartment buildings in the area, and another one is by a single individual slash business. And these lawsuits, the second one named the mayor and the governor and the city attorney for not doing anything about the situation. I believe the mayor's original plan was to allow a certain section of the city to remain closed, of this section to remain closed, which had art in it from Black Lives Matter and other such things. They were going to close down those streets. Now the violence has gotten so bad, it's turned into an armed homeless encampment in the area. It's too dangerous to be left that way. And citizens, even ones who support the ideas and principles of Black Lives Matter, are pushing back on this. It's become a national joke and a national tragedy. All right, last question here. How does this all end? Do these liberal mayors and leaders swallow their pride and basically ask the president for some federal help or are they just going to continue on down this path? 
I think they're just going to continue on the path. I don't think they really know what they're doing. I think they're in over their head, and they're making it up as they go along. As you saw in Oklahoma, Oklahoma laid down the law and said, no, we're going to charge these people as terrorists. When somebody takes over six square blocks of your city, you say, no, we're not putting up with this anymore. Now it's gone on for three weeks. The shooting happened on the third week anniversary of the chop with no end in sight. She is trying to buy her way out of it by making deals with different protesters, and the leaders don't represent any of the groups that are in there or all of the groups that are in there. Okay. Ari Hoffman, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Keep us updated. Thank you for having me. We'll do it. Welcome to Canary in a Coal Mine, your early warning system for all things absolutely insane that are happening in Seattle, the socialist utopia of Seattle, and coming soon to a city near you. Can I just say that <clears throat> I want my money back? I've had my 90-day trial of socialism. I've decided it sucks. I don't want it. And anybody who thinks life in the America will be better under socialism is just plain wrong. It's absolutely crazy. So... The latest socialist plan is to remove the police department from the entire country. Okay, I know a few other countries where that happened. Didn't work out so well for those residents, and it ain't working out too well for us here in the occupied land of the Chaz Chop, whatever they're calling it these days. Capitol Hill occupied protest in Seattle. So they got rid of the police department. Violence has skyrocketed. There have been rapes and robberies and assaults, according to the Seattle police chief. And on Monday, there was yet another shooting. This one left a 16-year-old kid dead and a 14-year-old kid in the hospital in critical condition. This is after last week there was a shooting which killed a 19-year-old kid. And you want to say a 19-year-old is not a kid? They're kids. Okay, I was stupid at 19. Most people are stupid at 19. They're kids. What these kids were doing driving around last night, or sorry, Monday night, at the age of 16 and 14 near the occupied protest is... A whole different discussion, but here's something that is horrifying to me. The Antifa folks were online bragging about shooting these two before it became known that it was a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. They were bragging about it. Here's one by a person who calls themselves Malice Antifa Super Stripper. This is a widely spread news source, the Super Stripper. I wonder how many people shared this just because they thought they were becoming friends with the stripper. Two guys in a stolen SUV shot up CHOP tonight. They came through and fired 15 shots. Then maybe 15 minutes later, drove across Cal Anderson Field and opened fire again and got effing murked. I don't even know what murked means. By security on the ground. This is the SUV they were driving. Beautiful shot placement. This had hundreds of retweets and shares. You guys proud of yourselves? You killed a 16-year-old kid and a 14-year-old kid. You started by claiming it was a drive-by, but that narrative fell apart very, very quickly. They were talking about how proud they were about how the shooting and all that. This is all these guys playing soldier. Some things didn't add up right from the beginning. If it was a drive-by shooting, if you look at the pictures of the vehicle, the windows are still rolled up, and they were shot at while they were rolled up. Usually, drive-by shootings, don't they roll down the windows and then shoot out of them? They don't normally shoot through their own vehicle? In a press conference following the shooting, Seattle Police Chief Carmen Best stated that our homicide detectives searched the Jeep for evidence, but there wasn't much we could find. 
The typical things we searched for in a shooting like this weren't there, and it's abundantly clear to our detectives that people had been in and out of the car after the shooting. While speaking, Best, an African-American woman, was heckled by CHOP occupiers. Seattle police are asking witnesses for help to try and piece together what happened, but as has been the case in other crime scenes up in this area, people are not being cooperative with our requests for help. No, go figure. Because they're worried about retribution, just like the businesses that were having problems. As video of the shooting was posted on social media, more questions mounted. Here is one of those videos, and then I'm going to follow it with a different video. And you guys tell me what you see in those. Where's the driver of this? Oh my god. And the, the the driver of this car. We've got. Give me on this bitch, bro. Yeah, Zay Hancho, man, out here saving lives. Zay Hancho, Z A Y H U N C H O O. Rest in peace, my brother. That came through. Rest in peace. He had to, but he got clapped, and we we bombed to the hospital. But whatever happened, happened, bro. But we out here to save lives and do shit for the people. And this is what happens, bro. So no so, violence is coming So whose car is this, though? This, this is, is your stolen, people's car? This is a stolen vehicle. But this is your people's car? Uh-huh. Spun through. And we... Who was driving it? Uh, some shoot... Like, active shooters. Active shooters came through in a stolen vehicle. They spun around the field a few times. And then right. they tried to come through our barrier, through our main entrance, bro. And our people are having it. We already had the right tire up. And they fucking put on a drew down and took him off the car, and we gave him service. Lucky <laughs> that they got that, bro. They can, he at least want to save his life, man. 
We see blood in the vehicle. Yeah, see, so they already hit in the vehicle, bro. Keys, are, keys are still in the dash. Wow. Holy cow. Yeah, it's all biohazard. In the video, as pointed out by Human Events Editor Ian Chong, it seems like the same weapon was being fired, not multiple guns. Audio of the occupiers following the incident display malice rather than looking out for the well-being of others in the air with statements like, I'm sorry I ran out of bullets, and you're not dead yet, maybe I should pistol whip you. Unbelievable. Speculation, unsubstantiated claims by CHOP occupiers was once again enough for local elected officials to capitalize on the tragedy to push their agenda. Marxist Seattle City Council member Kashama Sawant used the tragedy to blame capitalism and push her Amazon tax and the defund abolish police narrative, even though the police are still not allowed in CHOP, and the East Precinct is now occupied by CHOP leadership. So let me make sure I got this right. You think that these kids were more at risk because there wasn't a police department. The EMTs couldn't get there. They were transported to hospital. One of them was transported to hospital by the CHOP medics, whatever that means. And the idiots couldn't find their way out of the CHOP. There's a video of it that Andy No posted with these idiots circling, trying to figure out their way out. Absolutely unreal. You think these people are better off because there's no police department to go in and secure the scene so the EMTs could have gotten to this kid quicker or gotten them to the hospital quicker? Unbelievable. Council President Lorena Gonzalez tweeted out a whole Twitter thread about how this is all because of gun violence. Um, newsflash, you can't buy a gun in this state unless you're over 21. 16-year-old, 14-year-old, how would that have changed things? Okay, so now we found out that there were no guns in the vehicle and that they wouldn't have been able to purchase them legally anyway. So how would your gun control laws have stopped this shooting? I'm asking. Unless you get rid of the Second Amendment completely, how would that have got stopped this shooting at all? Because it was the people that you marched with and you supported who set up this thing. Who occupied this section of Seattle? And now you're saying it's gun violence? Really? Unfrickin' real. Meanwhile, you guys tell us, well, you don't need guns because you have the police department, and now you want to defund the police department. In an interview with the Seattle Times, Sawant used the drive-by shooting narrative while Gonzalez tried to deflect blame away from the chop and blame gun violence. Here's some quotes for you right out of the article. This is from, who are we talking about here? This is Sawant. I want to express the deepest condolences to the friends and family, fellow activist community members killed in the drive-by shooting. One, we don't know is a drive-by shooting. Two, the last time she blamed a drive-by shooting or something like that, she blamed white nationalists. And it turns out it was gang violence. But that didn't stop her from blaming everybody under the sun for that. I think your consult, excuse me, can't speak today. Condolences are completely empty if you're one of the people encouraging these guys occupying the area. Here we go. There's more of this craziness. The violence was happening on Capitol Hill and other parts of the city long before the CHOP occupation was created. Um, who's the council member for Capitol Hill? You're the one who wants to defund the police department and abolish the police department. Shouldn't you be bringing in more police to secure the area that you represent? I'm having a hard time feeling bad for the people in Capitol Hill because they voted for her. Businesses, I get it. You're kind of stuck where you are and you don't have a vote in that area. But the people who live there, you voted for this. I would love to ask all of them if they would change their votes right now. Love to ask them. Here's another one. They're trying to deflect the blame. Claims that have no basis in statistical analysis that the CHOP occupation movement was the reason for any violence. Literally, the CHOP said that their people shot these guys. 
The chop is talking about online. Oh, and then they found out it was a 16, 14 year old. Nope, couldn't have been us. The killings and other violence unfortunately happened near the East Precinct where the police were there for years. They're not there now. So what do you think is happening? Uh, Sawant said the shooting. So the ur- show the urgency to win defunding by of Seattle police by at least 50%. She is mentally disabled. Something isn't right there. Somebody's going to get mad at me for saying that. Something isn't clicking here. If you think that a shooting shows that you need to get rid of the police, something is not clicking up here. There's a lot of information, reporting and information on social media, I think misses the point. Oh, I'm sorry. This is Council President Lorena Gonzalez. There's a lot of reporting and information on social media that I think misses the point around what we are seeing manifest itself again on Capitol Hill and throughout the city. Gun violence is a public health epidemic across the country. Yeah, it's on the increase because you guys want to get rid of the police department. Criminals know they can do whatever they want. Are you prepared to say that you have caused this mess? No, of course not. You guys didn't want to admit that you caused a problem with the West Seattle Bridge. For years and years, Seattle Department of Transportation knew this could be a problem and didn't do anything about it. You guys didn't put away money for it. The city's losing $300 million because of coronavirus shutdowns. And you guys didn't have a rainy day fund. The, you guys defunded the navigation team because you don't like that they have to sweep people off the streets and offer them services. And you're worried about the homeless problem. But you caused the homeless problem by enabling them to be on the streets. This is all because of bad government policy. Bad policy by the Seattle City Council. By failure of that policy, the experiment has escaped the lab. Completely escaped the lab. And now they're trying to say that a 16-year-old kid and a 14 uh, is dead and a 14-year-old kid is injured because of their mistakes. They let them take over the precinct. They abandoned the precinct. They told the police to abandon the precinct. They didn't do anything when these guys set up barriers. So whose fault is all this? Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. I just, I don't know what to say because I'm so upset. I didn't even know these guys and I'm upset. How much longer is this going to go in for? I don't understand. How much longer is this going to go on for until people wake up and realize that you voted these morons into office? The Seattle Times, during that interview, didn't push back on any of this or the fact that with the Seattle City Council President, Lorena Gonzalez, who was talking about the gun violence, that in 2019, there were 18 fatal shootings in all of Seattle in the entire year, and that this week alone, there have already been four shooting incidents with two fatalities in the six-block area of CHOP. As more details became available, such as the age of victims, the stories began began to change. The Jeep was allegedly doing donuts on the playfield before shooting. There may have been different vehicles. They may have been throwing firecrackers. Following the shooting last weekend, occupiers in the CHOP blame white supremacists, even though the CHOP representatives said it was gang violence. <sighs> Facing growing violence, multiple lawsuits about the CHOP, growing local and national criticism, Mayor Jenny Durkin announced last week the CHOP would be dismantled over the weekend. However, protesters stopped anybody from doing anything. So let me explain to you what happened. They sent in the Seattle Department of Transportation to remove the barriers that they installed to blockade the CHOP. They installed them for them. So they send in these guys to remove them. A bunch of people lie down in front of the construction equipment, and some of them even pull guns on the Department of Transportation guys. I went by to check it out. Those guys were sitting there all day on your taxpayer dime, watching what was happening because they wouldn't go near the area because there was no police and because they were being threatened. So those barriers stayed up an extra few days, and then the shooting happened. Meanwhile, the guys inside a shop, they had already, a bunch of them had left because they saw things going downhill from the other shootings. They came back. 
People with guns started coming back, and that led to Monday's incident. But here's something else. They started cutting. There are these metal hooks on these giant concrete barriers that you use. You attach chains to them. I've posted video before how they're dropped and installed. They started, the people in shops start cutting off those hooks. So it'd be harder and harder for them to be removed afterwards. And now all the crazies with the guns are coming back in. Whereas beforehand, it was just turning into a giant homeless encampment and uh, guarded by aging Black Panthers. Chief Best gave a press conference after the shooting and she said, two African-American men are dead at a place where, the, where they claim to be working for Black Lives Matter, but they're gone. They're dead now. And we've had multiple other incidents. Assaults, rates, robberies, shootings. So this is something that's going to need to be changed. Yeah. I mean, why is the police chief the only public official who's making any sense whatsoever? I don't get it. You wanted to fund the police after a shooting? But let's see what happened today. You know that after all this, after the shooting, what happened? The mayor today sends in construction equipment to start pulling away the barriers. And they came with these massive loader types that could just grab the things and go because they had cut the metal off them. And they started pulling them off 10th. But meanwhile, the people inside the chop came running out with their garbage furniture. They've been stockpiling all over the chop, chaz, whatever, for hangout space and started building back their own barriers. It's like a bad version of lame is. Unbelievable. More protesters are returning to the area. There have been reports that Antifa and John Brown Gun Club and all those crazies are coming back because they want the fight with the police. This dismantling of the city-installed barrier comes a day after the shooting. I don't believe it. I just... Where is the logical common sense in these people? Here's something else interesting that happened today. It looks like the mayor is trying to settle scores. Today, Mayor Jenny Durkin sent a letter to the Seattle City Council asking for them to discipline or expel Kashama Sawant. Why? Because Kashama Sawant led a protest to her house the other day about the, um, about the you know, defund the police and stuff, and they spray-painted her house. Now, mind you, Mayor Jenny Durkin's address is unlisted because she was a U.S. attorney, and she claimed she had death threats, which is why her address wasn't listed. Hey, I asked them to remove my address after I got death threats, and nobody unlisted that, but okay, I guess it must be nice to be in power. So she's upset about that. She could have said something when Kashama Sawant led an occupation of City Hall. She could have said something when she used city resources and had numerous ethics complaints about her socialist organizations that she herself runs, running her policy out of her office rather than the city of Seattle. She could have done anything with that. She could have said something when Kashama Sawant was encouraging the chop. No, she didn't say anything about that. It only happened once they went to her house, which makes this whole thing look bad. I hate Kashama Sawant as much as anybody else. I want her out of office. But at the same time, this just looks like revenge because Kashama Sawant's been calling for the removal of Jenny Durkin. So now Jenny Durkin's calling for the removal of Kashama Sawant. It looks like she's just settling scores by all this. She's just going after her for everything. And here's an interesting thing. Somebody I know filed an ethics complaint against Kashama Sawant for the occupation of City Hall because she opened the door and let them all in. The ethics committee, which is appointed by the Seattle City Council, talk about a watchdog group, right? They said there was no case to be made, and now the mayor is doing the exact same thing. So I wonder if they accept that case and not the other one. This will be interesting to keep an eye on. Following the abandonment of the East Precinct, occupiers of the shop have been marching to the West Precinct and have been vandalizing the location for the entire last week. They've been marching long before that, but they only started vandalizing the West Precinct this week, which means they think they're going to be able to take over the West Precinct, <coughs> Excuse me, where the 911 call center is. That may be a way to dramatically reduce the amount of 911 calls they're getting from the CHOP and the CHAZ area. Washington State Patrol has been closing I-5 through downtown Seattle every day for the occupiers to march across it. When did we let these people take control of highways? So the other day, they marched to Mayor Jenny Durkin's house. She didn't care when they were shutting down the highways. She didn't care when they were trashing the police precinct. She only cares when they come to her house. 
And they call us NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Funny stuff. Meanwhile, the mayor is facing two lawsuits now. One's a class action lawsuit hitting the entire city for the actions of uh, allowing the chop. Another one is directed specifically against her, the governor, Jay Inslee, and the Seattle city attorney for allowing this. So she's under a lot of fire right now. Meanwhile, she's been talking all weekend about she's had, excuse me, very productive conversations with the protest groups, and she might be trying to buy her way out of this. They're having closed-door meetings with these people. She's negotiating with terrorists. People who occupy downtown Seattle, giving them whatever they want. Still, they march to her house. Still, they call for her removal. It's not getting anywhere. Why are you putting up with this nonsense? See, the mayor thinks that these people put her into office. She knows she's going to get a hard challenge from the left. She doesn't think she's going to have anybody challenging her from the right. So what she's trying to do is kiss up to the lunatics. What she doesn't realize is that the people on the right voted for her last time because the person on the left, Carrie Moon, was so horrifying. <sighs> Unbelievable. Meanwhile, oh, they still t keep talking about how, you know, CHOP is such a peaceful place in the Seattle Times and CNN and Jenny Durkin called it a block party and the summer of love and a street fair. Yeah. Yeah, I think this experiment has failed. Uh, this isn't getting better. How does this end? Don't know. Are they going to remove all the barriers? Well, these people are only going to build new barricades. So what that probably means is there's going to be another confrontation with, with Seattle Police Department or worse. Who knows? I don't even know how this ends up. Usually I can see... How this is going to end at the end, I have no idea right now. have no clue. Is it going to end violently? Because the problem is when you're negotiating with the people in the shop, they represent so many different groups. They don't all speak together with one voice, and they all want different things. Because really what they're after is a Marxist socialist agenda, and the mayor cannot give that to them no matter how hard she tries. If you think this isn't happening to you, I want you to check if one of these things has tried to pop up in your city. At least most cities have said, no, we're not Seattle. And that's a direct quote. Oklahoma, at least, is prosecuting these crimes. Unlike Seattle, which I mentioned in a past episode, the Seattle city attorney is just sending these guys back to the battlefront because he's diverting these guys. Instead of going to jail, he's sending them to certain organizations that are diversionary treatment. And those guys are occupying the chop right now. This is coming to your city. This is coming for the country. This isn't about, um, this isn't about Black Lives Matter. Go to their website. Check it out. This is about a socialist Marxist agenda. They're pushing it, and everybody's falling for it because they're so worried about being called politically incorrect that they won't push back up against the stuff when it's needed, and they're already losing the narrative. Don't say I didn't warn you. We'll be back after a few words from our sponsor. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am joined today by Joe. The reason you don't see Joe's last name, and I'm not being more specific about who Joe is, is because he is currently working security inside the shop for various agencies, companies, people that need his protection. Joe has sent me a few things in the past that you have seen on my social media pages, videos, pictures of things that are going on inside the shop. Given the tragedy that we heard about today with a 16-year-old who is now dead, another 14-year-old who was shot, this in accompaniment of a 19-year-old who was killed last week, I thought it was important to get somebody's perspective who's actually inside the shop. So, Joe, the mayor and CNN and the Seattle Times and everybody else have called it a block party and a peaceful place and a street fair. Is that your experience inside the place? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I, I know that a lot of people, I think what people don't realize is that there's, there's kind of tourist hours during the day where there's just so much going on that um, you likely won't notice um, a lot of the, uh, commotion that's been that that i've been experiencing inside there though i do see it um and experience it personally at all hours of the day but um 
during the early morning hours, uh, at least yesterday, during the early morning, everyone was pretty pretty intoxicated. Um, we saw quite a few altercations, physical altercations. Somebody tried to attack us with a with a staff. Um, and at at night, uh, I was there actually around like three a.m. last night, right uh, before or after the shooting. I'm not, I'm not even sure. Um, I wasn't aware that that had happened till till this morning. But um, there there were a lot more people than I thought there, and, and you you always see fights happening. I mean, there stuff breaks out and you there's videos out there too as soon as a fight breaks out everyone yells to put your phones down because they don't want they don't want that kind of uh reflection on the chop but that is definitely what i've been experiencing so let me ask you this uh, two questions based on that you've served overseas would you say this is the most high risk area you've been in compared to some of your uh service in the past yeah, honestly, I I almost prefer being overseas. Um, I think it's a combination of this happening to the place where I grew up, which which has been pretty rough to see. But also overseas, I mean, things were there. Were, pl plans were in place. We had we had uh, contingency plans, and we were in a situation where if if things got bad, we were, were most of the time we had people that could get us out, or we can get ourselves out. But here, I mean. You we're going in with one or two people, um, depending on the depending on the type of work we're doing. But if we're escorting people, we're going in one one or two deep. And if anything goes down, we've we've been in touch with with uh, SPD, and they've told us clearly if anything goes down, then um, with, no one's coming. So, um, and I mean the it's the mob mentality it forms so quickly. Is the second the attention is drawn to you, uh, it you're you're just surrounded. And, and it just, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. Oh, I was gonna say it just takes one. It just takes one incident. Yesterday, when we got mobbed, it was one person who just started, and within within seconds, we were surrounded by by thirty plus people. Now, you had told me that the John Brown Gun Club had left. Did the announcement by the mayor that the chop was coming down and DOT showing up to dismantle it? Did that attract people back? Or are you dealing with? A different kind of, I guess, clientele, for lack of a better word, that is now in the chop than who was there previously. Um, well, I, I will also say to that, yes, the John Barker Club left, left after the basically when they thought SPD was going to come back in. But from what I've heard, they actually came back last night, and I believe that they may have been involved with the shooting. Um, but we, it's it, it changes and also changes during different hours of the day. Um, at night, we see a lot more gang activity. Um, the early morning again it's 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 a lot of intoxicated people that still haven't really gone to sleep yet and uh, a lot of a lot of the homeless people i mean that that chop has pretty much attracted all the homeless people in the area um but you we do see similar faces but it, it does change on, on a daily basis uh, i would say um aside from the 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 few like diehards that are constantly there the ones staying right outside of the uh precinct I don't know if that answered your question, but no, a hundred percent. So if this is the majority of the people who are now there are the homeless people that we've dealt with over the city limits for the past three, five years, would you say you're starting to see those problems or that is magnified because they're all concentrated in one area plus enabled by all the guys at the barriers with the guns? Uh, what do you mean by those problems? Like 
like so, okay. for example, all across Seattle, we've had vandalism, we've had theft, we've had fights, we've had people strung out on drugs, we've had needles everywhere. We've had all this stuff is because of the homeless population that we have, you know, around Seattle. We have the prolific offenders who just cycle in and out of jail. Now there's no police arresting them. Now there's nobody to steal stuff from. So is it just this is the way they live their lives and they're just taking it out on whoever's nearby? Or is there a specific thing, oh, we want to attack, I don't know, a business or we want to attack a news station or we want to attack whoever, um, residents? Is that what's happening? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, th while there are while there is a very large homeless population there, um, I, they're not really, and I've dealt with them in various capacities working security in downtown for many, many years. Um, I don't see so many issues brought on by them necessarily. I, I guess technically everyone's homeless there, but um, I, I don't, the, the traditional drug user, homeless people, they're there and you see them and they're, they're uh, high and tweaking and whatnot, but they're definitely not the focus, I guess, or not what I've been paying so much attention to. But as far as the other groups of people, yeah, it was, it was a weird sight because we were there when the last group of uh, officers and National Guard left. And we watched as the protesters moved up towards the precinct and they, it, it just immediately, they had no one to direct their anger towards and it just kind of died down. And then they started yelling that they thought it was some kind of conspiracy and it was a trap and they were running around and telling people to focus, like look, look for undercover cops. They thought they were in there. They thought basically that they were going to funnel them all in and kill them or some, something ridiculous like that. So it was, it was, there was a weird atmosphere for a few hours and then it, then the anger just turned on themselves. So that, what I've been hearing is a lot of reports and what I've seen for myself is a lot of reports. Every group that's in there thinks they're in charge of what's going on. Have you seen anybody that you would really call the main power broker there? Because the mayor is negotiating with people and I'm not really sure who she's negotiating with when everybody thinks they're in charge and everybody says, well, we're not abiding by that ruling. Um, yeah, that's a very good question. I, I have been wondering that myself because no, you, they, in the beginning, now there's really no dialogue going on, no official dialogue. There's just people with microphones running around. But in the beginning, they had a stage and they somebody would come up and say, like, we need to defund the police. And then they'd get booed off. And then they'd be like, no, we need to abolish the police. And then they, again, start fighting amongst themselves. So they really, they both, they don't have leadership and they also don't know what they want. Um, and no, I, I haven't seen, I've seen a few people that ha that have consistently been on behind the microphone. Um, but nobody there's there's absolutely no leadership and that's why this problem it will never get solved you can't you can't i mean she can negotiate with one group and i i, I highly doubt even amongst the individual groups that they can convince their people to do anything but that definitely won't be able to convince other groups they're they're not on the same page at all so the question that i want to ask is what's the worst thing you've seen but what i'd rather ask instead is what is the thing you see that's most common to give a sense of what it's like inside the place to the people who are watching. What do I see most common? Um, it, a, I mean, it, like, as far as something negative goes or just Well, in, like, for example, you mentioned that you see fights break out all the time. So is fights yeah. the most common thing you see, or is it the most common thing you see is somebody threatening somebody with a gun or theft or whatever, or, you know, is it just the fights are the most common kind of thing you see, or is it something else? So, so without going into too much detail of, of, about my clients, um, they're not liked by people within the shop. So I, 
I will acknowledge the fact that it's not always violent in there. Um, it is, uh, uh, it can get violent. It likely does get violent or will get violent if you don't 100% agree with everything that everybody's saying. Um, and my clients are known to not. So I, I, like I said, well, I do acknowledge the fact that it's, that there are peaceful people in there and that it's not always violent. As soon as we go in, it generally turns violent. And it's just a lot of, I would say the most common thing we see is people trying to shut us down, kick us out, telling us that we're not allowed in there, um, uh, yelling at us, surrounding us. And we definitely do get assaulted. People try and hit the camera or try and hit our cameras and stuff and try and uh, uh, somebody tried to hit us, like I said, uh, earlier with a stick yesterday uh so it's really just the the it's it's pretty crazy i guess that that in this country that we get kicked out of streets that i've grown up on uh public streets and there's nothing to happen no, no one to uh really help us out or do anything about it something that's coming across to me is ironic and interesting is that you don't want this to be happening at the same time your company is probably doing very well like most security companies are from all this happening at the same time, you don't want to have to be providing that kind of security in this kind of situation because it's not good for anybody, despite the fact that you're making a buck off it. Um, so that actually speaks highly of your character. The fact that, you know, it's great for you to be making money, but at the same time, you'd rather see this end. It makes me think about Minneapolis City Council paid, I think, $63,000 last weekend alone for private security since they disbanded the police department. Do you think that this might actually become the future of Seattle, in which case politicians are contacting companies like yours and others to provide security for them if they actually go through with abolishing the police department? Um, I, I could definitely see that. I, I, I could say personally that my company will not be providing, again, this isn't about money. My company will not be providing security for politicians that want to abolish the police, and I can guarantee that. And I hope other companies follow suit. Um, you can't you can't put citizens in a, in a position where they are now left to fend for themselves and we're going to put our resources to help protect those people. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a lot of our, a lot of our work has been volunteer as well, but it, immediately uh, these businesses and residents surrounding and inside of CHOP, they obviously can't voice their concern and their, uh, their, I guess their, they, they, they do, agree with the initial message that was lost within 30 seconds of this whole thing started. But um, <clears throat> they have been reaching out every day. We get new, whether it's residential properties, businesses every day. And uh, I could definitely see that being the future um, uh, where it's, I mean, I, I, I see it in the present uh, where we're the only law and order in, in the chop area right now. And, I know that there are other security companies operating in there, but as far as us have, having highly trained people, um, we've been operating definitely in a different capacity. And it's honestly felt almost like we are the police force there since we have so many clients in that area and we're essentially responding to whether we're doing proactive patrols or responding to incidents where we're, our, it's our vehicles that are driving around, um, no police. Something else that speaks to the character of you guys and your company is that you guys are volunteering your time at other businesses that are not paying for it just because you see something going down and you're preventing it. So on behalf of everybody who's watching and everybody who's there, I just want to say thank you. And we hope that you stay safe. And thank you for joining us. And please keep us informed 
of what's going on there because really the eyes of the world are on Seattle right now, and we really appreciate you bringing it to us from your perspective. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. I am joined once again by Maya Espinoza, who is running for the Superintendent of Public Instruction of Washington State. You may all be focused on these lawsuits out of Seattle because of the chop or anything else going on, but you may have missed a different lawsuit that is happening. Maya, apparently you've been threatened with one. Would you like to tell my audience why? We'd love to talk about it, Ari. Thanks for allowing me to do so on your show. Glad to be back. Uh, yeah, so I was slapped with a lawsuit for defamation um, against my opponent. Um, he filed a lawsuit against me, I should say, because he thinks that what I said in the voters' pamphlet, uh, well, one statement, was defamatory and false and should be removed from the voters' pamphlet. So that line, which I'm happy to repeat over and over again, is that the incumbent ignored parents and teachers by championing a policy which teaches sexual positions to fourth graders. And unfortunately, Thurston County ruled in Reichdahl's favor last week, said, well, did he champion the policy? Does it teach them sexual, but yeah. So they ruled in his favor, which I was, Frankly, not all that surprised about. I mean, it's, you know, the Thurston County is where Olympia is. It's where he lives and works. Um, and it, yeah, I found their interpretation to be wrong. So we're going to appeal it. Um, but ultimately, you know, I get to keep talking about this issue and he keeps gets to keep defending why he thinks that, well, he wasn't the one that, it, I mean, the excuses that were given in court were really quite precious not taking accountability or responsibility for the statement or for you know the curriculum itself i mean at one point he even said we can't be expected to look at every piece associated with the curriculum i'm like uh, no i'm pretty sure you should be responsible for that that's exactly why we're outraged i'm a little confused because i read the curriculum i read through the entire curriculum i didn't just want to believe what everybody was saying online about it i wanted to see it for myself you went easy on him you could have yeah, been far more graphic if you wanted to, and it all would have been true. That was my thing. You know, I, I said, too, we could, you know, go, we could name a dozen other examples. And the sting of the law is supposed to be, you know, what matters most. Even if I got the facts wrong, it should, in any event, we get to keep talking about it. I'm happy to, you know, list some of these other examples. I've talked about them before. Yeah, they're quite grotesque. That was just something that I thought, was palatable statewide, but happy to talk about what they learn in second grade or middle school. Let's talk about what's in the high school curriculum. It's, there's a reason why the, you know, referendum corrected, collected hundreds of thousands of signatures and we'll see what happens on the ballot. But frankly, I'm thankful for the opportunity to keep talking about the issue. Last I heard, the number was 266,000 signatures, even with a pandemic going on, and they didn't have any paid signature gatherers. The only money they spent was on stamps, from what I heard, and they still managed to break pretty much every record they had on a referendum. Yeah, break, breaking state record during you know social distancing and without a paid signature gatherer. I think he's a little bit scared to be tied to that legislation, which he promoted and put forth, he championed. So I think it's, it's no surprise that he's trying to shield himself from the effects that that referendum are going to have. But the more that we keep, get to keep talking about it, the more we can show that he's aligned with it. And frankly, he's not willing to take accountability for this law that he put through. 
I think that you just got a campaign commercial handed to you because all you got to do is mention the lawsuit, mention what he did, and just keep running it till election day. You don't even have to do anything else at that point. I know. Well, you know, there's there's one way to make something public that he wants to hide, and that's by filing a lawsuit. So we've gotten a, a number of press about it statewide. And yeah, more and more people just kind of seem like if they're not shocked about this issue now for the first time, they're saying, why is he trying to sue her over? Isn't this freedom of speech country? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a little nuts to me. So what's the timeline? So he filed the suit. You lost in Thurston. You appealed. When does this thing actually go to print? Uh, well, they don't print for the the state does not print the voters pamphlet for the primary. Mm -hmm. So in theory, we have some time to be able to. I mean, I, I don't even know if we'd be able to get something different in there, which would be nice if we can't have that line. Let's put something different since that deadline has passed. But um, there, uh, the statements are available online currently. Uh, different counties have published them and they have their own rules about it. So, you know, even if the appeal goes late into November, I think that the effect will still be the same. I think honestly, more people are going to hear about this now than they would have in the fourth paragraph of my voter statement mid paragraph. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, just somebody came up to me this week and goes, oh, we were socially distancing, of course. But somebody came up to me this week and said, that woman who's running for superintendent, I hear she got sued because she called him out for the sex ed thing. She's definitely got my vote now. So yeah, that's an upside. We, you know, it takes a little bit of courage to call him out because it's an uncomfortable subject. You're calling out, you know, the establishment on what they're, you know, taking on this big giant. But at some point we can't be shy or you know, modest about it. And this next step in the referendum is really going to be educating on why people should reject 5395. It says a lot that he's running away from this whole thing and doesn't want to be tied to it at all. Switching gears for a minute, just because I got you and current events are, well, unfolding by the second. So there's been a lot going on with the demands of the people behind the protests in Seattle and elsewhere across the state and the country. One of the demands that they list regularly is an end from the school to prison pipeline. They keep bringing that up again and again and again. If you were in office today and you're receiving this list of demands, do you have any ideas of how you could tackle something like that if it was being presented to you? I'm saying presented in a appropriate form where they say, hey, we'd really like to see this end, not taking over downtown Seattle. Right, right. That would be the first to ask of me. Can we sit down and have a conversation about what you actually want here? I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I would love to take on this issue as superintendent of public instruction. Actually, I think it's quite funny that my opponent, the guy in office now, talks a big game about equity and, you know, what is his latest term? Educational justice, I think is what it was, which I, I thought education itself was the great equalizer so that people don't, you know, aren't forced to, to, you know, walk down the road of desperation and then, you know, a life of crime and hence, you know, the effects of the school to prison pipeline. But no, he's, he's one of these politicians that does one thing, says one thing, does another. And we see that with his environment, or actually he did bring up the environment in his last political speech. Um, but for me, it, you know, it's really personal. This is something that is, you know, close to family for me. Certainly, 
you know, the school to prison pipeline effect is, um, you know, a real phenomenon. And I do think that there's more that we can be doing in education. But I think we talk about it in terms of funding, you know, impoverished schools or, you know, making sure that students of color have these extra boosts that other students don't get. And I just really see it as a Band-Aid approach to a broken system. I think our public education system needs a whole revamp. And, I, you know, I've talked about that before. That's why the platform of my campaign is to reimagine education. Education should not be monopolized into, as, as it is now. I think the more that we provide options, the more that we provide equity. When you give parents the option, school choice, um, you know, where they attend school, the type of school that they attend, I even want to see more electives so that students are invested in the type of education that they're receiving. But the more that we empower students and empower parents, the more that they take ownership of their education and parents will always make the best choice for their students. So options equal equity. Actually, there was a great article that came out last week um, covering all of the OSPI candidates, but that was something that they picked up that I said, you know, some people are afraid to kind of side with school choice, so to speak, but I think it's essential and time and time again, it proves that minority students have an upper hand when they're given choices. Interesting. I like that approach. And I think about it, you know, I saw this year that the SATs were shut down in certain places. You didn't have to take the SATs. And I thought, well, this is kind of like a, you know, mafia where you have to take the test from people. You have to buy the books from people. You have to take the test. If it's so important, they wouldn't have shut it down. They would have found a way to do it with, I don't know, your parents proctoring or who knows what to go to a gymnasium and socially distance from people, but then they got rid of it. So how can it really be that important? Excellent idea. I like that a lot. I think vouchers could be helpful for that. Pick the school you want to go to. Ideas like that. Those are things they're throwing around. One more thing, which just occurred to me. Sorry to switch back to the other thing for a second. How did he know what your section of the voter pamphlet was going to say? Because I know that in my day when I ran for office, I didn't get to see what my opponents wrote before it went to print. When they mention you directly, whether it's by name, in my case, I said the incumbent, uh, the Secretary of State notifies. Those ah, people. I gotcha. Okay. That's how they knew. But those statements are published now. So okay. they're, they're on the Secretary of State's website. But yeah, that's why the, the hearing was so quick. They even yeah gave some excuse about, well, we were delayed in being notified and da da da. So we have to have, you know, a hearing in four days. So yeah, we put our best, best foot forward, but more to come on that one. And yeah, I, I'm just glad to be able to bring this issue to light because I do see it as calling him out and, you know, people are upset with the curriculum, people are upset with the law, but not very many people make that connection that he is the one that put this bill forward. I don't know if we talked about this last time, Ari, but he is the one that sponsored the agency request bill from his office to the legislature. So his name is the sponsor. Well, on this show, you can always say whatever you want to say, because we believe in freedom of speech around here. And even if it's disagreeing with me, I'm more than happy to have that conversation too. Maya, if people want to learn more about your campaign, what's the best way for them to do so? Please visit my website. It's mayaforus.com, M-A-I-A. -A. Um, you could find us on Facebook as well. We always respond to folks. So Thanks for having me on your show, Ari. Appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm not going to keep you too long today because you got an election to go win and we are counting on you. So Maya is my pick and I hope you go check out her website and vote for her 
on election day. The primary is coming up in August, so please make sure to vote. Vote early, vote often, and vote for Maya Espinoza. We'll be back after a brief word from our sponsor. Welcome back to Canary in a Coal Mine. Remember that if you like the podcast, to rate, subscribe, share the podcast, tell all your friends about the podcast. I love those of you from other cities that are tuning in and sharing all this stuff and talking about it. If you want me to cover something in your city, please send me the stories. I love talking about that kind of stuff. We've covered stuff in Denver. We've covered stuff in Philadelphia, California, New York, all over the place. Send me the stuff. I like getting it from you guys, especially since I don't live in these places. Don't live in New York anymore. Love to hear from people on the ground what's going on. Don't send me crazy, though, by the way. I've been getting a lot of that recently. Please don't send me crazy. Send me stuff that's verified. Send me normal stuff. I'm happy to research it for you do the legwork. I was reading Dan Crenshaw's new book, and I was loving it. It's called Fortitude, American Resilience in the Age of Outrage. Usually these kind of books are an opportunity for a political figure or a celebrity to make a quick buck. Because people want to read about, when it comes to Dan Crenshaw, the congressman from Texas, they want to read about how he lost his eye, and they want to hear about Saturday Night Live with Pete Davidson. So they buy the book for that. Instead, usually what you get when you get these books is you get a long biography of, I grew up as a helpless child or any of that kind of stuff. No, that wasn't what this was at all. He interwove stories from his childhood that influenced his life later and did a very, very good job doing that. And I enjoy the book. I think that it teaches you a lot of stuff about what's going on. This book was obviously written a year or two ago and didn't predict everything that was going to happen now. It's, it's dead on accurate with all the outrage culture, the cancel culture, all that kind of stuff. And it has a story about how he lost his eye and the story about Saturday Night Live with Pete Davidson. I think you should pick it up. I think you should read it. And I think people need to explore things that are outside their comfort role. I've been reading books on the left. I've been reading books on the right for years. My wife says to me, I don't read enough female authors. So she's giving me some books by some female authors. I just like my action books. You know, not that many female authors in the action book genre. So anyway, she's giving me some of those to read. But you need to stop thinking about this as if it's black and white. And I don't mean that in the racial way. I mean that as in there's clear distinctions between right and wrong here, or there's clear distinctions between um, who's guilty, who's not, based on whoever's narrative. I think that's a better way of saying it. The other day, and this is going to sound kind of elitist of me, I was on my boat, a boat that I share with my father-in-law, and I was bringing it back to the place where we moor it in uh, Seattle. And as I'm on my way back, I see on the shore tons of cop cars. I have no idea what's going on, but it doesn't look safe in the parking lot of where we keep the boat. So as I'm coming in, I see a bunch of boats coming out. And you can tell that these boats had been out already and were turning around and heading back out. And I call over them. I'm like, hey, guys, what's going on? They go, oh, there's a guy over there with a gun to his head and an AK-47. You know the way you usually hear these things third hand. You know, it sounds like an army of terrorists has captured part of downtown Seattle. These days, that's not so hard to believe. But anyway... I just didn't know what was going on. So I flipped the U-turn and headed back out and hung out there until it was safe to come back. Later, I saw a video of what actually happened. Check it out. So for those of you who couldn't see it, this is a guy, an African-American man, holding a gun to his head. And he is walking along, and he is obviously in some kind of distress. And the Seattle Police Department come in. They fired a rubber bullet at the gun knocked the gun out of his hands, he fell to the ground, and a few minutes later, he has his head in his hands, he's shaking his head back and forth, you can tell with regret, and then he hugs the police officers seemingly for saving his life. Everybody wants to paint all police officers as bad. It's just not true. The amount of cops and resources that were diverted to saving one person, to saving one guy, didn't matter what skin color was, to saving one guy, stopping him from possibly harming others, it was heroic, it was heroic. And people want to say all police officers are bad. 
they want to say that protesters, they're all good. Well, you can't say all protesters are good and all police officers are bad because there are good protesters, there are bad protesters, there are good cops, there are bad cops. Overwhelmingly, the police officers in this country are good people. We've seen that just from statistics alone. I can't say overwhelmingly the protesters are good people because I have no frame of reference of how many people were doing this versus how many people were looting and stuff. Could I say the majority of them seem to have good intentions? Yes. Do I disagree with them on a lot of issues? Yes. Are there enough that they're making a problem and it's overshadowing whatever message they're trying to push? Yes. And they're not condemning it. Some have, but they aren't really making an effort to do it. Look at what's going on inside the shop. Nobody's talking about it. One message I got from Dan Crenshaw's book was personal responsibility, which has been an ongoing theme in a few episodes of some books I've been reading. Take responsibility for your actions and look past the narrative and do your own research into what's going on. People who subscribe to my page do that all the time. They see the kind of stuff I'm sending. Nobody, no media outlet shared that video except for Como News of that guy at the marina. Nobody did. I didn't see it anywhere. I didn't see it on national news. Nothing. This is police doing a good thing. How come we're not talking about the good things right now? With the coronavirus, we don't talk about recovery rates. All you hear about is how many cases. You don't hear about how, how many hospitalizations. You don't hear about how many recoveries. Why is Washington not tracking these things? It could give people hope. It could give people a message. Why are they always only talking about bad news? In the Hitchhiker's Guide to the uh, Galaxy series, one of the books talked about a spaceship that was powered by bad news because it was the fastest power in the galaxy because bad news travels fast. Are people not interested in good news, especially with all this going on? It gives people hope. We should be listening to. We should be hearing more good news. With that, I'll leave you, and we'll see you next time on Canary in a Coal Mine.